Hey, good morning, Dallas Bible Church, or good evening. I'm, again, not sure when you're watching this, but we're so thankful you've chosen to join us for worship online this Sunday. Whenever you're watching this at home, my name is Zane Parsley. I'm on the pastoral staff at Dallas Bible Church, and I'm filling in for Pastor Aaron as he and Kat and Caleb continue in the second week of their sabbatical as they're seeking the Lord in prayer and in rest. And uh, Aaron, if you're watching this, our prayers are with you as you're seeking him. Uh, So we are so thankful that you've joined us this morning. Last week, some of you guys asked me, what was I looking at when I was looking off camera and preaching? Well, we've actually got a little bit of a crowd in here. It's a safe crowd, but uh, I'll just give you an idea of what it looks like from, from my perspective. Um, we've got right down there front, Luke, I running the camera and Ben Osa in the back on sound. There's Don Moody. Wave at us, Don. Hey there. There's Cameron Sparks, our youth pastor. Back in the back is Jeff. And of course, my lovely wife, Tori and my son, Lazarus. So if you hear a baby crying during this service, you'll know exactly what baby it is. It's mine. Um, if you're watching that video and you're thinking, man, I wish I could be there when you're preaching a sermon, or I wish I could be there during a worship service. Praise God. Man, we all are. And I just want to remind you that there are things happening at the church right now that you can connect with physically, both digitally and in person. So just make sure you're checking your emails, scrolling all the way down the bottom, because for the next couple weeks, we're having corporal events at the church on Sunday morning. So this Sunday, we've taken communion in the front parking lot. Hope you've joined us for that. And next Sunday, we'll have something too. So I just want to remind you to be checking your emails on the regular. Well, One is the amount of times that I felt uh, necessary to watch Tiger King during the time of quarantine. Two is the amount of times that I have gained and lost 15 pounds. Three are the amount of sourdough starters that I've tenderly raised from their juvenile years to their adulthood and callously slaughtered. Four is the amount of times that I have worn actual hard pants. And five is the amount of times I've thought I've had coronavirus when it's just been allergies. And 111 are the amount of days that have passed since Governor Abbott first issued his stay-at-home order. Tell me, are you feeling it yet? Boy, I sure am. So this week, we're continuing our journey in talking about a new normal, following Jesus when everything has changed, because everything has changed in our lives. And last week, we talked about how when everything has changed, God has not. God remains the same, though circumstances in our lives compound over and over and over again, and we feel the stress of change. Jesus remains the same. He showed that to his disciples. He showed that to John and Peter and Thomas and showing them his wounds following the resurrection. Because when everything has changed, God has not. But sometimes when everything changes, it doesn't really. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes when everything changes, it doesn't. And I think any of us who have been through massive life change in our lives can relate to this. For those of you who have been married or have gotten married, you know that long after the cake is cut and the vows are said and the guests have been sent home, though everything in your life has changed, it becomes normal again. We call it a new normal for a reason, right? It's because it's normal. So long after the guests have been sent home, he's still he and she's still she with their same old problems, foibles and follies. And it becomes normal. It becomes repetitive. For those of you who have had a child, you know that after the doctor sends you home, weighs the boy, the nurse walks you to the car, everything in your life is about to change and get turned upside down. But after a period of weeks, you get used to not sleeping through the night. 
You get used to changing diapers. You get used to the new normal, and new normal becomes normal again, and it begins to feel the same day after day after day. If you've ever had a big promotion or a new job change, or heck, if you've ever gone from fourth grade to fifth grade, you know that after the attaboys, after the congratulations, the good jobs, it begins to feel the same. Those meetings that you really, really wanted to sit in become meetings again. Fourth grade and fifth grade both still have homework the finance board and the executive board begin to feel the same because at some point in your life, in a period of change, when we're going from an old normal to a new normal, it's going to feel normal again. When everything changes, sometimes it doesn't. So when the shine wears off and every day feels the same, how do we follow Jesus? Well, I want to check back in with the disciples this week. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull it out and turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 21. We're continuing our journey in that weird, nebulous period of change where Jesus has resurrected fully in power and in glory. But the Holy Spirit is yet to descend to the disciples at Pentecost, and we're following their journey. So if you have your Bible, again, open to John chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. And same as last week, I would encourage you, if you're at home with your kids or if you're watching this collectively with your life group, maybe just hit pause and read this ver- these verses together, read this scripture together, and talk about it amongst yourselves. If you want to read it with me, praise God, join me. We will begin reading now. So verse 1, chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus, we know him, Nathaniel, Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, hey friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. Verse 6. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did this, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, a.k.a. John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. That's kind of gross. I don't know what's going on. And jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, only about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even so, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So sometimes when everything changes, it doesn't. (laughs) The disciples are living this. They have, after verse 1, we don't know how much time has passed. You know, Jesus has appeared to them physically, but we don't know how many weeks have gone by since we pick up in chapter 21. Uh, But we do know how much time has passed to allow them to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee and sit and wait on Jesus to show up. And this is, remember, the same place that they came from three years prior, Galilee. And in the course of three years, their life has changed tremendously, yet they find themselves fishing again. 
They've seen what it looks like to watch a man who was born crippled stand up and dance in the temple courts. They have heard what it sounds like to hear a woman who cannot speak praise Jesus and sing to God for the first time in her life. They have seen the angels of the Lord ascending and descending on Jesus Christ in power, and yet they are fishing again. Because sometimes, though God may move and change our life dramatically, our lives may not feel like they have changed at all. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we look into your word and we look at the story of the disciples. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in your Holy Spirit and that you would show us what to do when everything has changed, yet we feel so monotonous and every day feels the same. May we know how to seek you then and may we know how to seek you in patience. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the word I would have for you today is this. When everything has changed, seek him patiently. When everything has changed, seek him patiently. Now, what do I mean by seeking him patiently? Well, I think we need to know in a new normal, when it's become normal, everything seems to move a little bit more slowly. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but when you're driving to Colorado, it feels a lot longer, the car ride feels longer than when you're driving back from Colorado. Or if you're going to the beach, the trip to the beach feels longer on the way there than it does on the way back. Uh, scientists have studied this and they refer to this as the return trip effect. And what that is, is whenever you're in a new place and you're experiencing something new for the first time, a new normal, time seems to feel like it's passing a lot more slowly. Like, again, we know this. Uh, For me, it appears whenever I'm running. If I'm running a new route, one that I haven't done before, it feels way longer than if I'm running the same route, even though it's the same amount of time and the same amount of distance as it always has been. Because when you're doing something new, it feels like time is taking more slowly to pass. And and just to be candid with you guys, this is where I'm at in my life right now. And my wife is as well. I I prepared this message, and as I was reading through it before I preached it um, today, it's Thursday afternoon, uh, I was noticing I'm talking a lot about changing diapers. Like I'm just bringing up time and time again how hard it is to redundantly change diapers. And that's because six months ago, my wife and I had our son. And these six months, Tori, they felt like a long time, haven't they? She's nodding her head. They felt like a really long time because this is a new experience that we don't have expectations of. It's like driving to Colorado. You don't know how long that's going to take. When you drive back, it feels like it's taking a lot quicker. That's the return trip effect. And I feel like so many of us are in that place right now where we don't know how long we're going to be stuck in this mundane new normal. Well, what I want to encourage you to do this morning is seek God patiently. And what that's probably going to look like is doing the next right thing instead of doing the next big thing. Let's take a look at what the disciples are doing here. There's a temptation to see the disciples as being disobedient. They've just seen God resurrected in power, in a new resurrected body. Their whole life has been changed and turned upside down. And yet, what are they doing? They're fishing again. They're sitting in Galilee, and they're waiting, and they're fishing. And, and if you read some commentaries, it's easy to see them as backslidden because God has just given them a huge job to do. Hey, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You remember that from John chapter 20? So why are they fishing? Isn't that redundant? Isn't that mundane? Have they relapsed? Have they regressed from their past behavior? Are they being disobedient to God by just sitting around and waiting when God has given them a big job? 
Well, I think if we look at Scripture more broadly, we'll see that the answer is no. So let's hop outside of John for a second and take a look at Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark tell us a story about how the disciples have been given specific marching orders that they are following right now. So Matthew 28, verse 10, uh, Jesus has just appeared to the women at the empty tomb. And the first thing he tells them is, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Mark tells us a similar thing in chapter 16, verse 7. An angel appears to the women at the empty tomb and says, Go and tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. John doesn't mention these things. He's far more concerned with giving us the signs of Jesus' messianic divinity than showing us the disciples' motivations in returning to Galilee. The disciples have been given a task, the next right thing to do. Go to Galilee and wait. Does it feel mundane? Does it feel repetitive? Does it feel cyclical? Yes, of course it does. Go to Galilee and wait. I'm sure they were tempted to do a whole spectrum of things. Do we go to the desert and start a colony out in the middle of nowhere, Egypt? Do we march on Herod's palace and claim the kingdom of God? Do we preach the gospel on the temple steps? What are we to do right now? You do the next right thing. You go to Galilee and you wait. I know there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives right now at a church. Um, I've talked to some of you this past week that are having to make big decisions in your life. Do we quit our jobs to stay home with our kids if school's going to be stay at home in the fall? Do we ask our aging parents to move into our guest room because they're so lonely? Do we close down the restaurant that we have put so much time and effort into? What do we do? These are huge questions and huge decisions that have huge answers. But I want to encourage you today with a small answer. Instead of doing the next big thing, do the next right thing you know to do. What's obedience look like this afternoon? What does obedience look like when you're playing with your siblings or when the kids have gone to bed? What does obedience look like in the next step? Because there's these big questions hanging in our mind, but I think what God would have us do is seek his presence and patience and instead do the next right thing. The next right thing for the disciples was to go to Galilee and wait. Here's how John describes the encounter. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which Didymus means twin, so if any of you guys are twins watching this, you've got company in the Bible. Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So the usual players. And they're sitting around and they're wondering, okay, we're here in Galilee. Jesus said he'd show up. What do we do next? And they go fishing. Peter says, I'm going out to fish. You never notice how there's always that guy or girl in a crowd who's like, hey, I'm going to go do this thing. You're welcome to join me if you want. I don't really care if you do or not, but I'm going to go fish. And what they really want is for everyone to join them. Well, that's what happens with Peter. Peter says, I'm going to go fish. And they said, we'll all go with you. So they all went and got in the boat. But that night they caught nothing. We call that the Aaron Armstrong special. Ask him sometime about his fishing trips. So far from being disobedient to God's call, what are they doing? They're doing the next right thing they know to do. These men are fishermen. We're in Galilee. We're waiting on Jesus. He's going to show up. What's the next right thing? Let's get dinner. Let's fish. They're knowing what they know to do. Now, does that feel mundane? Does that feel repetitive? Does that feel cyclical? Does that feel a little bit underwhelming after seeing the risen Jesus Christ in their lives? Yes, of course. That's what obedience often feels like. They're doing the next right thing. But here's the problem. The next right thing often feels like the last right thing. That's why I want to keep talking about changing diapers. 
That's the next right thing for me. And it feels a lot like the last right thing. How many diapers can you change? How many Zoom calls can you make? How many times can you call your mom and remind her to take her medication? The next right thing feels like the last right thing. And oftentimes in times of great change, when time is moving so slowly and it feels so redundant and cyclical, that can be discouraging. But brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know this morning that God honors, loves, and sees his faithful disciples who day after day, year after year, do the next right thing, even when it feels redundant. So I was, um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a missionary. Well, I wanted to be a lot of things. Uh, at one time, uh, I wanted to be a crocodile. At another time, I wanted to be a pirate. And if those two options didn't work out, I wanted to be a missionary. And the reason why was I, I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, and the Southern Baptists do missions for kids really well. I remember every year we would have a missions conference where we would have different missionaries come to church and tell kids these crazy, incredible stories about serving God on the foreign field. I remember one missionary in particular from China that brought us little boxes of ramen noodles, although I was from West Virginia, so I called them Raymond noodles, and I thought that was so exciting. Now we're going to eat noodles and talk about missions in China. And I sat there, and I listened to this guy describe smuggling Bibles into communist China. And this is the mid-90s, so these, these men would load up boats and trucks in Hong Kong and smuggle Bibles over into China, and I thought that sounded so exciting. So, of course, I wanted to be a missionary. They did big things. And they did big things all the time. But what I failed to realize was the faithful presence of men and women in my life, even in those moments, who were doing the small and faithful acts day by day. I'm thinking of people like Frank and Shirley Musgrave, who taught the fourth grade class at Highland Baptist. And they... <laughs> They would bring French toast on Sunday mornings with powder and this special juice that Frank would make to make us excited to come to Sunday school. And they were my favorite teachers, and I couldn't wait to get there. Or I think of Miss Naomi and Miss Carol and Miss Betty, names of a certain generation, right, who faithfully taught Sunday school year after year after year for decades and amassed a presence of faithfulness in the lives of children. Or I think of Eddie and Mary Henson, who never having gone to China, started a Chinese church in their living room with foreign exchange students in our local university and who faithfully served in God's presence day after day. And these were the individuals who did the next right thing and made it possible for an eight-year-old boy to say, I want to be a missionary. I want to follow God. And I think probably if I could talk to some of those Bible smugglers, they would say, really, day to day, the next right thing felt pretty redundant for us too. Don, you spent time in Somalia. You know what it's like to live on the mission field. Sometimes it feels redundant, doesn't it? She's nodding her head, yes. Absolutely. The next right thing feels like the last right thing. I think we do ourselves a disservice in church when we're constantly and inordinately focusing on big moves of obedience to the neglect of the small ones. So for those of you who feel stuck in a rut, for those of you to whom new normal has become normal, I want you to know that God does sometimes change. Sometimes, sometimes change the life of believer in an instant. But far more often, he does it systematically and cyclically through years of faithful service of doing the next right thing. So that's my first word of encouragement for you this morning. In a new normal, when everything has changed, yet 
it hasn't. Seek the Lord in patience. And what that often looks like is just do the next right thing you know to do. You've got these big decisions, these big things you're thinking about. Maybe God would have you to fish in Galilee and wait. And I know that can feel repetitive and redundant and cyclical, but what I want to do is I want to spend the next few minutes trying to show to you that that might not necessarily be a bad thing. That sometimes God uses those repetitious times in our lives to show himself to us in powerful ways. So let's keep reading the scripture. Uh, Look with me, if you would, at verse 4. So continuing with our disciples, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. What's going on here? We don't know. It may be that he's too far off, about 100 yards offshore, so they can't quite recognize him. It might be that it's still dark out in the morning. They can't see him. Or, and we see this in other gospels, he might be intentionally masking his identity. He does that sometimes uh, so that the disciples can't recognize him in his glorified body. We don't know any of that. All we know is they've been fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. And there's a figure on the bank and he calls out to them. Friends, have you caught any fish? If you fished, this is the perennial uh, good old boy that rolls up in his mercury and says, hey, you caught any fish yet? And you have to say, like the disciples, no, they answered. Verse 6. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And I can't help but think that some gears might be moving in the disciples' minds at this moment. Maybe it was something in the way he said the word friends that made John think back to a time where a man said, no longer do I call you slaves, I call you friends. Maybe it was something about the way his silhouette strode next to the bank that made him think of times in the past when they saw that same silhouette walking over stormy waters. Maybe it was that wry and almost condescending way he said, oh, you haven't caught any fish? Check the other side of the boat that made him think of a miracle long, long ago. If John's curiosity is piqued at this point, we don't know. But what we do know is in a moment, he knows exactly who it is. Read with me if you would. Verse 6, when they did that, when they throw the net on the other side, they were unable to haul in the large number of fish in the net. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. I know that trick. I know who that is. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and he began to swim. The other disciples followed in the boat. I love that. The dude's swimming, even though they're sailing next to him in the boat. They're towing the fish. He gets to the shore and Jesus says, verse 10, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter has to go back in the boat and he drags the net ashore. It was full of large fish, about 153, but even so the net didn't break. And here's what I want to show you right here. When you seek God's presence patiently by doing the next right thing day after day after day, patterns of behavior begin to emerge. When you seek his presence patiently, patterns of behavior begin to emerge. John knew this was Jesus because he knew how Jesus acted. He knew patterns in Christ's behavior. He knew him. He spent time with him. He knew what he smelled like. He knew what he looked like when he woke up in the morning. He knew the jokes that he thought were funny and the jokes that he thought weren't funny. He knew the way he would whistle absentmindedly when no one else was around. John knew Jesus. So when John saw a figure on the bank that he could not recognize, he knew by patterns of behavior, that's the Lord. That's Jesus on the bank. You too can know Jesus on the bank. I I wonder if some of us are in a period right now, a holding period where everything feels the same and Jesus is standing on the bank of your life right now and he wants to reveal himself to you. You too can know when Jesus is the bank, but here's the catch. There's a catch to this. You gotta spend time with him. This is how John knew that it was Jesus. He'd spent 
time with him. And what that looks like is years and years of faithful service, of chasing the Lord and spending time with him. Reading your Bible, praying, reading your Bible, praying, reading your Bible, praying. Zane, you say that all the time. Pastors are always saying, read your Bible and pray. Yes, and that feels redundant. But it feels redundant because we need to know the Lord so we can recognize him when he shows up. You need to spend time with Jesus if you want to recognize him on the bank. Um, last summer, uh, I had a weird moment where I thought my phone was reading my brain. Have you guys ever thought that your phone's reading your mind before? Yeah. So last summer, Tori and I got really into uh, jalapeno Cheetos. And they're as nasty as they sound, but they're so delicious. And I, I would eat jalapeno Cheetos all summer long, like a new bag every three or four days. And I would go to the grocery store and buy them. And it began to show after a time. But really loved these. And we would talk about them. And I would, you know, buy them online. And I remember at one point I was thinking, you know, it would be nice to have a bag of jalapeno Cheetos. And I pulled out my phone. And I looked at my phone. And in Google Ad Preferences, it said, jalapeno Cheetos? Oh, that's trippy. <laughs> and, and it kind of weirded me out for a second that my phone knew exactly what I was thinking. There's a reason why Google makes like $400 million a day selling big data. It's because advertisers know that you can predict a consumer's future experiences by their past experiences. And you can take their habits and you can see what they might want to buy today. You know, it's the same way when you spend time with the Lord. The more time you spend with him, the more likely you are to know how he's going to behave. My phone knows how I'm going to behave because I spend all day with it. Whether or not it's listening to me, I don't know, but it's certainly paying attention to who I am. And it's paying attention to the fact that this boy loves jalapeno Cheetos and it knows when to recommend that. It knows it because it spends time with me. It's the same thing with God. And I'm not saying God is like a 29-year-old going to Kroger to buy jalapeno Cheetos. He's far bigger than us. He's transcendent of us. And you can never predict exactly what he's going to do. But his behavior in the past is a pretty good indication of his behavior in the future. So when you're in those cycles of life, and when God reveals himself to you, and when you're looking for him in the future, you can take a look at the net full of fish and say, ah, the fish trick. I know that one. That's Jesus. Because you've spent time with him. Because you've spent time with him. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning. He, he doesn't just reveal himself in patterns in our lives. He, he chooses to reveal himself in patterns in our lives. And, and he repeats those things. I don't know if you guys are noticing this at all, but this story is really familiar. Maybe you're listening to John 21. You're like, that sounds very similar to another miracle in the Bible, and I can't quite place my finger on it. Well, I want to take a moment and go back in time, way before Golgotha, way before an empty grave, right to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I want to go to Luke chapter 5. So again, hopping outside of John 21 to Luke chapter 5. And I think it'll make a little bit of sense why Jesus is doing this when we look at Luke 5. So Luke 5, verse 1. I'm going to read it aloud. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's how Luke refers to Galilee, <clears throat> the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats and thereby the fishermen who were washing their nets. So there's these guys, they're washing out their nets and Jesus says to them, um, can I borrow your boat? So verse three, he got into the boats, the one belonging to Simon and asked him to put out a little away from shore. Then he sought, sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Does that sound familiar? Hey, throw out your net to the other side of the boat. 
Simon answered, Master, we've, been, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything, the Armstrong special. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Okay, I trust you. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fists that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners on the other boat to come help them. And they came back and filled both boats so that they both began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, look how he behaves here as opposed to how he behaves in the future. He fell at Jesus' feet and said, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Contrast that to him swimming 100 yards to get as close as he can to Jesus. I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. Verse 9, and he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John and the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. The fact that Jesus chose to reveal himself to the disciples at the end of his ministry in the same way that he did at the beginning of his ministry is not arbitrary at all. He knows them. He knows what's going to get their attention. He wants them to know that he's still there for them, even though it feels redundant and cyclical. That's how God reveals himself. And I think there's so much power in this story that we miss. When Jesus tells his disciples to return to Galilee and wait, I know they must think of the first 20, 30 years of their life where they did nothing but sit in Galilee and wait for something to happen. Fish and wait, fish and wait. And then one day, something did happen. Jesus showed up with a net full of fish. And then they're sent back to Galilee. Boy, doesn't this feel like where we were before? And they sit and they wait and they sit and they wait and they do the next right thing. And then in a moment, Jesus shows up with a net full of fish. God uses experiences on repetition in our lives, cycles in our life to reveal himself to us. It's how he says, I know you. I know you, Zane. I've been there before with you. I'm still there with you. And I want to reveal myself to you, even when a new normal feels normal. And right now in this new normal, when you may feel like your life is on repeat and you're having trouble seeing God in this and you're seeking him patiently, but where is he? Maybe he's trying to call your attention to a similar time in the past when he was faithful. When you first got your cancer diagnosis, long before remission and day after day after day, you did the next right thing. You took your chemo and God showed up powerfully. When you went through that horrible breakup in high school and you felt so alone, but God showed up powerfully. When you lived by yourself for the first time in a new city and you felt so lonely and there was nothing to do, maybe God is trying to draw your attention back to those past experiences of faithfulness so that he can show, I know you. I've got you. I know who you are. So this all feels kind of esoteric right now, right? We're we're talking about cycles and passageways and when our life feels on repeat and when God repeats things in our life. I want to move from the esoteric to the practical. What do we do with this? When everything is changed, when everything is new, and yet the new normal feels normal, what do we do? What do we do? Well, this week I want us to do two things. I want us to be really careful when we're struggling with the next big thing. I want us to, to boil it down to the next right thing. So when you're considering, what's the next big thing for me to do right now? Just boil that down for a second. Step away from that and ask, what's the next right thing I know to do right now? So that may look different for all of you. For some of you, that may look like, yeah, changing another diaper. It may look like another morning at home with the kids. For some of you, it may look like shifting things up or making things different. It might look like hopping on your bike and going on a long ride down meandering way. It may mean turning things down and spending time with prayer. But what is the next right thing for you to do. For the disciples, it was sit and wait and fish and be in Galilee. 
So let's really try to boil that down this week and make that a habit. What's the next right thing for God, for us to do that God is telling us to do? And the second thing I want us to do beyond that is just to discern patiently. I know so many of us are at places in our life where we're looking for God's words and we're looking for God's directions. And these routines that we feel stuck in, is there something God is trying to say to us in those? Is there something God is trying to do right now in the things that feel on repeat to recall our attention to times past when he was faithful? So I want to encourage you this week, sit, discern patiently God's word. So we're a Bible church, right? We believe in the inspiration of God's word. We believe the Holy Spirit is in it. We believe that's how he speaks to us. So great place to start is the Bible. Discern patiently God's word this week in his scripture. Do it through your friends who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Do it in seeking him in prayer. But this week, let's really slow down, move away from those big questions in a new normal, and instead discern patiently what God's will is for us to do. So before we wrap up, I have one final question for you. And it's a question that Tori and I were talking about last night. Why do you think God had the disciples sit and wait? He could have sent them out immediately, right? He could have sent them out to the temple to start the kingdom. He could have had the spirit descend on them right away in that locked room. Why do you think he had them go to Galilee and wait? Well, I want you to dwell on that this upcoming week. Because next week, we're going to talk about what happens after Peter swims to the bank. Jesus is going to have a real lesson to teach these boys. And I think it would not have worked had he not had them sit and wait. Jesus had more planned for Peter and John than just fishing. I'm sure it felt like they were living their life on repeat. And while they were doing the next right thing, I'm sure it felt like the last right thing. Long before they would go on to be missionaries in Ephesus or write a collective seven books together from Scripture or preach God's word and power on the temple steps, long before they were ready for that, God would have them sit and wait. God has more for you also. But right now, maybe all he wants for you is to sit and wait and seek his presence patiently. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your presence in the Scripture. We thank you for the way you revealed yourself to the disciples. We pray that you would help us in patience to wait for you when everything has changed, when everything feels the same, and when we're waiting for your word. May we be patient. May we wait for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.